Welcome to the Creekside Community Church Podcast. If you don't yet follow Jesus, we want to provide you with a safe place to explore the Christian faith. If you are a Christian, we want to provide you with resources to help you grow in your faith and ultimately serve Jesus more effectively. For more information or to partner with us, visit our website at creekside.cc. Subscribe so that you don't miss any of our messages. We hope this content helps you take your next step with Jesus. Go ahead and be seated. And as you do so, I, I want to give you a hypothetical question to think about as we get started today. Um, if you had the power to shape people's hearts, how would you use it? If you had the power to just take anyone and you can uh, mold them or nudge them or shape them so that they would respond favorably to you or unfavorably to you, how would you use that power? What would you do with it? If you're a parent, the answer is pretty straightforward, right? <laughs> you get your kids to obey, want to obey, right? <laughs> right? Soften them towards your reasoning and your logic. Like, <laughs> I uh, think, like, if, if I have that power, like, like, soften people to your good news, God. Um, that's question is what makes the passages we're going to be looking at today so weird. Because we're going to see God exercise that power that he has to shape our hearts, but he's going to use it to harden Pharaoh's heart. Why? Why would God do that? He has the power to affect hearts. He's been sending Moses and Aaron before him over and over again to say, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And so far, as we've looked at the story, Pharaoh on his own has said, no, no, no. But now we're going to look at some passages where actually God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. That's just what it says. So God is saying, let my people go, and simultaneously hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let them go. Why would God do that? What's going on? Uh, this is a tough question to, um, to look at and explore. There's a lot of ink that's been spilled through the centuries trying to explain what's going on here. And it's, it's actually a little bit contentious. There's different views out there, so I'm going to be sharing mine and the, the best way I have to put this together. But I was tempted not to talk about it at all because, well, it's, it's difficult. And I almost like drowned in research this week. Like, well, what are other views of this? What's going on? Like, why would God do this? What are all the possible reasons? Let's dig into these other texts too. And I was tempted not to talk about it on Sunday and just be like, put it on the bonus podcast. And then that way no one could argue with me after church ends. <laughs> Uh, but it comes up so many times in this passage, I don't think it'd be fair to just ignore it. So why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? As we look at the story today, that's going to be one of our central questions that we're going to work towards an answer for. But I do believe that you can only understand that answer in light of the story as a whole. So a little bit of catch-up, and then we'll work our way through this story. Uh, we are in week six of the book of Exodus. We've been working our way through this book chapter by chapter. And so far, we've seen that the Israelite people are in Egypt. They're in slavery. Then the Pharaoh gets really bad and mean, tries to stamp out God's people, um, practices ultimately genocide against them, having all the baby boys thrown into the Nile River. One of those baby boys is Moses. And this mom, instead of just throwing him directly in the river, puts him in a basket in a river. And God preserves his life. 
And he is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He grows up. He leaves Egypt, but then God sends him back and says, I want to work through you to rescue my people. And so Moses and Aaron, Aaron is Moses' brother, they've been going before Pharaoh and talking to him. And last week we looked at these first encounters and we looked at the first three of ten plagues. Today we're going to look at the next six plagues. And uh, almost everything I say is going to build off of last week. So if you missed last week, you can find it just on our YouTube page or uh, through our podcast. Those are both options. Uh, But you're going to see that there's a lot of similar themes going on. Judgment against the Egyptians, judgment against Pharaoh, judgment against the false gods of Egypt. As we work through this, we're going to work towards an answer of why God does things the way he does in this story. So let's pick things up straight away uh, with the fourth plague. This is found in Exodus chapter 8, starting in verse 20. So if you have your Bible, uh, if you're watching at home with the Bible, you can open it up and find that spot. If you're here in person, you can also just look on the screen. But again, this is Exodus chapter 8, starting in verse 20. Exodus 8, 20. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh when you see him going out to the water, and tell him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you will not let my people go, then I will send swarms of flies against you, your officials, your people, and your houses. The Egyptians' houses will swarm with flies, and so will the land where they live. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. I wish God was still doing this today. No flies would be in my house because, you know, I'm a follower of him, something like that. That'd be cool. Uh, And this is actually the first time this comes up in the plagues, where God is starting to make a difference. It's almost like the plagues are getting so bad that God's like, okay, okay. Egypt, you're going to go through the plagues. Israelites, I'm going to make a way so you don't have to experience firsthand the full brunt or the full force of these plagues. So where the Israelites are living in Goshen, there's no flies there. I will make a distinction between my people and your people, and this sign will take place tomorrow. And again, look at the core reason in verse 24. This way you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. We looked at this last week. What's the setup for all of this? Rob preached on this. Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, the Lord Yahweh says, let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say? No, and I don't know the Lord. And so God's saying, okay, I'll teach you who I am so that you may know who the Lord is. And the Lord did this. Six swarms of flies went into Pharaoh's palace and his officials' houses. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined because of the swarming of flies. And what happens next is Pharaoh relents, sort of. He says, okay, why don't you guys go sacrifice here in the land? And Moses says, no, like you guys would, the Egyptians would, would stone us. They would kill us because that's sacrilege for, against your Egyptian gods. And God says, no, we have to go out of the land. And Pharaoh's like, okay, okay, fine. Just don't go very far. And so Moses prays and the flies go away. And Pharaoh hardens his heart and changes his mind. Doesn't let the people go. It's the fourth plague. The fifth plague, uh, Moses and Aaron come back and they say, look, if you don't let the people go, God is going to strike your livestock, the livestock of the Egyptians, and they're going to die. Pharaoh says, eh, no, I don't believe that's going to happen. 
We turn to the next plague, the fifth plague. And the Lord did this the next day. All the Egyptian livestock died. But none among the Israelite livestock died. Pharaoh sent messengers who saw that not a single one of the Israelite livestock was dead. But Pharaoh's heart was hard. And he did not let the people go. How many of you here uh, have experienced ranching? Anyone here experience ranching? All right, there we go. All right, I knew some of you did. Uh, anyone had to clean up a cow before? Get rid of a cow body corpse? Is that what you call it? Yes. Uh, big job, little job. <laughs> right? Disgustingly big job, right? And this is in the time before dynamite or other things, other means of uh, other shortcuts that we have now, right? <laughs> oh, okay, that's another way to do it. <laughs> big hole. You can do it different ways. <laughs> Obviously, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I do know <laughs> that it's a lot of work. Get rid of a cow, right? A cow is a ton of work to get rid of. All the Egyptian livestock dead. Wow. This is a mess in the land of Egypt that they have to clean up now. But still, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Didn't let the people go. Nope. Sixth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of furnace soot. And Moses is to throw it toward heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the entire land of Egypt. It will become festering boils on people and animals throughout the land of Egypt. So they did this. They took furnace soot and they stood before Pharaoh. Now, now there's a sense of poetic justice going on here. What was the Israelites' jobs in Egypt? Do you remember? Making bricks. These are the, the kilns where they would burn and bake the bricks. So they're taking that, some of that same furnace soot where they were in slavery doing this job, and they throw that soot up in the air, and it becomes boils on Egyptians and their animals. It became festering boils on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. So this is something new as well. Last week, we looked at the first three plagues. Plague one, when the Nile turns to blood, the magicians can copy that. They can't undo it, but they can copy it in a small way. Plague two is frogs. The Egyptians can somehow make frogs. They can't undo all the frogs, but they can make a few more frogs somehow. Plague three we looked at last week was gnats. You remember what the Egyptians said with the gnats? It said, this is the finger of God, Pharaoh. You better pay attention. This is so interesting. The, the Egyptians can kind of, the, the Egyptian magicians can copy the first two plagues and that's it. And what we're going to see with the rest of these plagues is they're not even trying anymore. And now they can't even stand before Moses and Pharaoh because they've got boils all over themselves. No power to heal themselves. The false gods they worship, no power to heal them. Magicians are powerless. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had told Moses. This is the sixth plague, the boils. And this is the very first time you read in the story of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And that's important. We're going to build towards this answer and build on this answer. But it's important to notice the, the, the progression here. The first five plagues, Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. It's the last five plagues that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So even though God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, it's not like Pharaoh wasn't already going this direction. 
Pharaoh's, his own magicians had said, this is the finger of God, you should listen, and he said no. He's experienced five plagues where he has total freedom to change his ways, and he has not done so yet. Last week, we talked about how uh, part of the purpose of the plagues is judgments against the gods of the Egyptians. And we're going to see that trend continue to today. Exodus 12, 12 is the verse for that if you want, but God says, I'm going to judge these false gods of the Egyptians. So what's going on here? Uh, this is partly judgment. These, these last three plagues we just looked at, the flies, the, the livestock, and the boils against uh, Hathor, the goddess of the sky. It's also partly judgments. Uh, I don't have a picture of him, but of, uh, against the god Horus. He was the god of healing, right? Horus, the god of healing, can't heal the boils. And Hathor the goddess of the sky apparently doesn't have that much power over the sky because you can't get rid of the flies that are in the sky. She can't get rid of this soot that travels through the sky, lands on people, gives them festering boils. And again, Horus doesn't have the power to keep the livestock alive. Um, Hathor was off, also, also often symbolized with a bull as a type of animal, as livestock. So it's also perhaps... The death symbolizing of this God. So yes, judgment against the gods, but we're going to see another thing today. And in these next three plagues especially, I want you to pay attention because you're going to see a new theme emerge and grow and almost take center stage. Is that not only are there plagues judgment against the gods of the Egyptians, they are also displaying God's power over creation. Think about Genesis 1 and 2, if you're familiar with that passage that records how God created everything. Think about some of the things he created. What's the very first thing? Let there be light. Let there be light. We're going to see that come up a few verses. When darkness goes over the land of Egypt. What else? God made plants and trees grow. Greenery and vegetation cover the ground. You guys remember that? We're going to see the undoing of that. God made birds in the sky. We're going to see the sky covered instead of a place of life become a place of death. So we go to the seventh plague. And listen to what God says. We're, gonna, we're actually going to come back to this verse at the end because I think this is one of the key verses of this passage. God says through Moses, this time, Pharaoh, I'm about to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people. Then you will know that there's no one like me on the whole earth. And I love this. By now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague. And you would have been obliterated from the earth. This isn't just about me getting revenge on you or killing you, Pharaoh. I could have done that whenever I wanted. However, I have let you live for this purpose. To show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. You're still acting arrogantly against my people by not letting them go. Tomorrow at this time, I will rain down the worst hail that has ever occurred in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore, give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have in the field into the shelters. It's interesting because God keeps saying, send my people, send my people. Pharaoh keeps saying no. And so now Moses is like, okay, at least send the livestock out of the fields. Send something, Pharaoh. Give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have in the field into shelters. Every person and animal that's in the field and not brought inside will die when the hail falls on them. 
Those among Pharaoh's officials who feared the word of the Lord made their servants and their livestock flee to shelters. Isn't this fascinating? Increasingly so, we're going to see almost a choice for the Egyptians themselves. Not only if you're in the land of Goshen, do you not experience the plagues, but now Egyptians who are paying attention and listening have the power to escape this judgment. It's going to hail. Everything, everyone outside, every animal is outside is going to die. Bring your animals inside. And a bunch of Egyptians do. They've learned the fear of the Lord. So Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven. And the Lord sent thunder and hail. It literally says fire and hail. This is interesting. So there's clouds, there's hail, and there's fire. Is this sounding like other times in the Bible? Whenever God shows up in person, there's often in a cloud or smoke and fire present. And it's almost like God is saying, I myself am showing up starting now with these final plagues. I'm not just sending things. I myself am coming. I'm here in the land. So the Lord said, thunder and hail, lightning struck the land, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. The hail with lightning flashing through it was so severe that nothing like it had occurred in the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout the land of Egypt, the hail struck down everything in the field, both people and animals. The hail beat down every plant of the field and shattered every tree in the field. You hear the reflection of Genesis? Every plant and every tree. Identical language of Genesis 1. What did God create? Every plant and every tree. Now it is being destroyed, every plant and every tree. The only place it didn't hail was in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. So, plague of hail. God demonstrating his power over creation itself. And what happens next is Pharaoh repents, sort of, concedes a little more, and then the hail stops and he changes his mind once again. So then we have the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. The Lord then said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt and the locusts will come up over it and eat every plant in the field in the land, everything that the hail left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord sent an east wind over the land all that day and through the night, and by morning, the east wind had brought in the locusts. Now, we hear a locust, and we're like, oh, cute crickets. No. (laughs) Locusts are devastating uh, creatures. Um, Their their locust plague still happened today. Uh, I watched this little BBC thing on it. It was fascinating. But it's like a terror of of the world. They eat everything. Uh, They're very aggressive. um, And they kind of go crazy. Like they're they're not as rational as crickets normally are, even though crickets aren't really that rational in general. Um, uh, But the locusts are are wild and crazy. Like when you hear locusts in the ancient world, you're like, "That's, that's, that's death, destruction, terrible. And so this terrible destruction that goes up over the land, entire land of Egypt and settled on the whole territory of Egypt. Never before had there been such a large number of locusts and there never will be again. They covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was black and they consumed all the plants on the ground and all the fruit on the trees. You're just hearing Genesis. All, the, all everything. Every green thing. Nothing green was left on the trees or the plants in the field throughout the land of Egypt. Pharaoh urgently sent for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Please forgive my sin once more and make an appeal to the Lord your God so that he will just take this death away from me. 
Moses left Pharaoh's presence and appealed to the Lord. And then the Lord changed the wind to a strong west wind. And it carried off the locusts and blew them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. I think this is actually some foreshadowing going on. In a couple of chapters, we're going to read about the people going out of the land and then Pharaoh and his army chasing them down. And they get to the Red Sea. And you guys remember what happens? God sends a strong east wind to divide the waters so that the Israelites can safely pass through. And then once they're through, God sends a strong west wind. And it causes the waters to come back over the Egyptians so that not a single one is left. Do you hear the foreshadowing? All the Egyptians will be thrown into the Red Sea like these locusts were. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the Israelites go. So what Egyptian gods are we talking about now? Uh, Isis on the left and Anubis. Uh, both of these gods are related to the crops in one way or another. They thought Isis and Anubis uh, protected their crops. Anubis was also the god of death, but also was supposed to take care of, of the crops. And so um, God, through both of these, through the hail and through the locusts, is showing Isis and Anubis have actually no power to protect the crops. And in the next plague, we're going to see judgment against the god Ra, the sun god of the Egyptians. Ra is so powerful that he makes the sun rise every single day without fail. He brings the light every day. Or does he? The ninth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another. And for three days, they did not move from where they were, yet all the Israelites had light where they lived. Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your families may go with you, but your flocks and your herds must stay behind. Again, Pharaoh's sort of conceding, but not everything still. Now, now, we don't get this, but in the ancient world, how did you worship gods for other nations, or how did the Israelites worship the one God? Through animal sacrifice, right? It'd be like, you can worship God, but you're not allowed to use your voice, and you're not allowed to pray, okay? Wait, what? That's kind of one of, one of the main ways we worship God. You'll worship the Lord, but your flocks and your herds must stay behind. Moses responded, you must also let us have sacrifices and burn offerings to prepare for the Lord our God. Even our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind, because we'll take them to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was unwilling to let them go. Pharaoh said to him, leave me. Make sure you never see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you will die. As you have said, Moses replied, I will never see your face again. And then we also know that part of this conversation was Moses warning Pharaoh, there will be one more plague. Please let the people go. And he doesn't. So what is God showing his power over? Right? Let there be light. Now the opposite is happening, darkness. Look, that God, Ra, has no power over sun and darkness. The real God, the true God, he does. So 
Back to our question. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Again, first five plagues, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Last five plagues, it comes up time and again. We read them. But God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What's going on? Why would God do this? Well, thankfully, we're not totally in the dark, pun intended, um, about this because God actually says why he's doing this. It comes up in two places at least. We already read this passage in Exodus chapter 9. When God says, I'm about to send all my plagues against you, your officials, and your people, then you will know that there's no one like me on the whole earth. By now I could have stretched out my hand, struck you and your people with a plague. You would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I have let you live for this purpose or for this reason, to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. Part of the reason God is doing the plagues, the plagues he is doing, the ones he chooses to do, why he chooses those things, and part of the reason he hardens Pharaoh's heart is so that his name will be made known on the whole earth. So that not just the Israelites and the Egyptians can know about what's going on, but that the whole world would hear. The next chapter gives another purpose statement. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may do these miraculous signs of mine among them, and so that you may tell your son and grandson how severely I dealt with the Egyptians and performed miraculous signs among them, and you will know that I am the Lord. Part of the purpose is not just for the whole earth at that time, but for the following generations. That these would be so amazing and astounding and such a clear sign of who God is, that he's the creator God, that you would tell your kids and those kids would tell their kids and those kids would tell their kids. And what's so great about this is that today you can find Jewish families every year having Passover Seder together as a means of telling their kids what God did. It's actually, we're going to do a little bit of that next week. So here's the point, <clears throat> and I made it rhyme so you could remember it. <laughs> God's method of liberation serves as an invitation to every nation in each generation. God's method of liberation, the way in which he saves, how he saves is intentional. There's a reason for it. It's to serve as an invitation to every nation, to all peoples, and to each generation. And I think the proof is in the pudding that this happened. Like, we're still reading about this today. Apparently, each generation has gotten this message. And the nations did hear. Uh, in my own personal Bible reading this last week, it was cool. I was just, this wasn't planned. I was just in First Samuel. And the beginning of First Samuel, it's the time of the judges. And the Philistines actually capture the ark. I'm going to read it later next. It's about the building of the ark, but this is later in Israel's story. The Philistines, got the enemies of God's people, they capture the ark, and then God starts fighting his own battles to defend himself, and he starts striking the Philistines who have his ark with these diseases and these afflictions. And listen to what these Philistines say. These are not Israelites saying this. These are Philistines talking to each other and trying to decide what they should do. Listen to what they say. They say, why harden your hearts, fellow Philistines? As the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened theirs. When he afflicted them, didn't they send Israel away and Israel left? We should send the ark back. We shouldn't be like Pharaoh in Egypt was. How did the Philistines know what happened in Egypt? 
because everyone knew what happened in Egypt. Because it was such a big deal that it could not be ignored. So why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? God chose to do things in this way to serve as an invitation to every nation in each generation. That as troubling as it is, and we're going to talk more about why and how this works, but it looks like God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order for more people to hear and to have a chance to respond to this, okay? So this is one of those things where... This is one of those things where to get the outcome you want, you have to do the opposite of what you would think. To get the outcome that you want, you have to do the opposite of what you think. So I got a hammer and nails here today and some old wood. Uh, We have an old house. We've done lots of projects on it, redone things. So we have lots of old wood laying around. Um, How many of you have ever built or used old wood, hammer and nails and old wood? How many of you, right? And you've experienced the wood splitting because it's too dry and old. And if you know the secret to make sure that the wood doesn't split. Anyone know how this works? Anyone know? Don't be shy. I know some of you know. All right, so you got your nails. Normally, if you nail it into old wood, it's going to split. The way you make it so the wood doesn't split, at least not as often, is you turn your nail upside down, and you blunt the top of the nail. Do you guys know this? No? Is this news for you? Cool. I taught you something. You learned something in church today. Uh, You blunt the head of the nail, and that makes it so it doesn't split the wood. Wait a second. Does that make any sense? Not at first, right? Okay, if it's sharper, it splits, but if it's blunter, it doesn't? What's going on? This is actually uh, on a small scale of what you probably have experienced on a large scale. Think about how wood works, all these fibers and these grains going together. If you strike that wood with an axe in the shape of a wedge and it's sharp, you don't actually have to drive that axe all the way through, right? You just get it going, and actually the force splits it apart, right? Now, think about this. This is kind of weird to think about. But what if you could strike the, that, that log hard enough with a hammer that the head would sink in? Would it split the wood? What would happen? It would just break the wood fibers. It wouldn't split them. So what goes on? So when this is sharp, it's acting like an axe, and it's going to split the wood fibers. When you blunt it, it acts like a hammer, and it breaks the wood fibers instead of splitting them. So you don't want the wood to split. You make the nail less sharp. Super weird, but it works, and it's true. It's one of those times where to get the outcome you want, you have to do the opposite of what you would think. And there are other things in life like this, right? Uh, Anyone know what to do? If you're facing a a hard situation, a hard problem, and you're trying to solve it, and you just get dead end after dead end, you can't make progress on it, what should you do? Yeah, take a break, right? Stop working on it. Have you guys ever experienced this? It's true. It's one of those times where to get the outcome you want, you have to do the opposite of what you would think. Or how about, uh, what's the best way to think of a really great idea? Yeah, think of a really, a bunch of really mediocre ideas. That's what you do when you brainstorm, right? If you say, think of one great idea, that's really difficult. But if you say, think of a bunch of mediocre ideas, you can do that, and you can take one of those and work with it. 
So here's the point. I think what we're seeing God do with Pharaoh is a similarly strange thing. What is the outcome God wants? He wants everyone to know who he is. So what does he do? He works on Pharaoh in a weird way where he's actually making it harder for Pharaoh to know who he is, but he's doing it in order for everyone else to know who he is. So here's how I think about this. I think about this like when we read the story, again, we just gravitate towards God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it's almost like we're watching God do this. We're like, God, what are you doing? (laughs) Beating on this guy. God's like, no, look, I took that nail and then I built this thing. I built salvation and I'm inviting you into it. Like, but, but why did you bound the nail? It's like, no, look what I'm doing through it. The best way to not split wood is to blunt the point. If the best way to think of a really great idea is to try and think of a bunch of mediocre ideas, if the best way to get past an impasse and find a solution is to take a break, then maybe, for God, the best way to soften your heart was to harden Pharaoh's. God's method of liberation, the way in which he saves, serves as an invitation to every nation in each generation. Let me just say a couple more things. Even with that, I know it can seem unfair. Let me just tell you uh, two more things in line with this. Number one, again, remember, God, uh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart five times already. First five plagues is only Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Pharaoh is already walking this direction. Um, Christopher J.H. Wright is a, a scholar. Uh, I'm using his uh, commentary on the book of Exodus a lot as I study through this. It's really good. Listen to what he says on this. He says, if we're tempted to feel sympathy for Pharaoh on the grounds of God's alleged manipulative hardening of his heart, we need to read the whole story, not so casually. This is the man who intensified his predecessor's unjust oppression of an immigrant ethnic minority to unbearably cruel extremes. Nobody made him do that. This is the man who persists in rejecting every request and every warning that he received from Moses and God, even after his own magicians recognize the finger of God, and after his whole government pleads with him to see sense and to halt the destruction of his country and the suffering of his people. Nobody made him do that. This is the man who admits that he is in the wrong, confesses his sin, and then chooses the same devastating path time and time again. Nobody made him do that. And the point is, when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, he's not taking someone who's like, loves God and wants to obey him and making him doing something contrary to his nature. He's taking someone who's already disobeyed God over and over again, whose heart already is hard, heart is already hard towards God, and keeping him on that same path. And the final thing I'll say is this, is that this isn't Pharaoh's final judgment. Pharaoh is not this time standing before the throne of God. This isn't when God judges the nations and assigns people to heaven or hell. This is still temporal. This is earthly what's going on. Like God has yet, uh, Pharaoh has yet to face God before the throne. We don't know what will happen then, but this is not that, right? God is not hardening Pharaoh's heart to 
hell. He's hardening his heart for, to serve as an invitation for all the world to know what God is like. So uh, I love this quote that says, The judgment on Pharaoh was one sovereign act within the long story of God's redemptive mercy, through which, in the end, the world will be saved. It is not merely a proof text for the calculus of predestination and individual salvation. In other words, to take this story and happen to Pharaoh and be like, well, how, does, how are individuals saved now? Does God harden people against him or not? It's like, that's not the point. The point is how God saves the world. And how God saved the Israelites and even the Egyptians who were willing to listen. So how are you guys doing? <clears throat> Did I get a little too academic there? Sometimes I do that like every other week or so. <laughs> All right. God's method of liberation serves as an invitation to every nation in each generation. So what is, uh, what's the application for us? How do we apply this story to us? I think the response is to consider who is this God we worship? What is he like? Who is this creator God? And how do we respond to him? And the answer is the way the Israelites would do a few chapters later. It's in worship. In worship. And worship is bigger than singing songs. That's how we often express our worship. Worship, the heart of worship, is a surrendered heart and a surrendered life. That's what worship is. So we use songs to express that idea but really at its core, worship is simply surrender. Surrender of ourselves and our lives before God. And why should we surrender to this God? Because God's methods of liberation didn't stop here. They continued into the New Testament time. Think about that last plague, the darkness. Because we see that come again later on during the cross of Christ. Here's what we read. At Jesus' death, we see an inversion of this theme. The gospel writers tell us the darkness came over the earth. The earth shook and the rocks split. Here, too, creation signals the deliverance of God's people, but only by means of the punishment of God's Son, against whom God's anger is directed. See, one more time, God brings judgment. But how is he doing it? Not this time through judging a people, or a leader of those people, but through himself bearing the brunt of that force and punishment through Jesus. And so I want to encourage you as we close today to do what the New Testament encourages us over and over again to fix our eyes on Jesus and to surrender once again to him. And if there's anything that's come between you and him, to take this time to confess that, to talk to him about it, to clear the air, so to speak. And to remember, who is this God? Because the God of Exodus is the creator God. And the creator God is the same God who went to the cross for us and for our salvation. And he's the same God who will return one day and finish his work. So let's pray together and surrender together again to this God. God, we confess all of us have at times and places in our lives and even this week and even this day, turned against you, done what's not pleasing to you, or uh, we've chosen actively not to do the things you've called us to. And God, we together ask your forgiveness. 
that we surrender to you now. We thank you that through Jesus, you sent a salvation. It's not for one people against another one, but it's for all the world. And I pray that as we look at your great acts of judgment way back in the book of Exodus, that we be reminded that you are going to return one day. You are a loving God and you are a just God. And we surrender to you. We ask that your will be done in our lives and that we would respond, each of us, appropriately to you. Choosing to follow you where you're asking us to, to be courageous and to do that. Choosing to surrender to you if there's something you're calling us to lay down. Choosing to tell others about this good news if you're calling us to do that. Again, that all of us would be surrendered to you. In your name we pray. Amen.